0: Have you ever just stood in awe? Awe brings feelings of wonder and maybe even like a dash of fear sometimes, but not the kind of fear that feels scary. It's more like the kind of fear that you feel when you're having a thrill of some kind. Awe evokes perspective on who I am in the midst of something other than me. It's reverential, it's inspirational, it's awesome, but way better than awesome. True awe. Like, I want you to think about somewhere it's happened to you. Why there do you think? Like, what about that place or that moment? Because sometimes it's not just associated with a place, but maybe it was a a moment in your life where awe just overcame you. Seventeen years ago, today, that one was born, and now she's singing in our praise band. I remember first child feeling awe. Maybe there's a, a place or a time in your life that you have felt that feeling. Why there? Why then? Maybe it was the sheer size of the place or the scale of the moment You know, like standing at the edge of the south rim of the Grand Canyon. It's so vast, right? Or maybe you've had the joy of gazing into the cosmos from a very dark place where there aren't any lights to pollute the view. I think of Sugar Creek Bible Camp. That is such a place. And on a clear night, you can look right into the Milky Way. You can see planets shining, maybe even catch a meteor or two showering down in a fiery blur, and it can make you wonder, Like, how insignificant am I after all? Or it can also make you think about how amazing am I that I get to exist along with all this. But nature isn't the only place we can feel this way. Awe may come over us at a museum. You know, I remember being at the National Air and Space Museum when I got to see with my own eyes the first airplane, the 1903 Wright Flyer, and not far away from it, was the Apollo 11 command module that just 66 years later went to the moon and back. It was awesome. I also remember going to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Museum a few years back in Cleveland. I was just kind of floating around, taking in, you know, Elvis stuff over here and Beatles stuff over there, and I remember walking around a corner and I saw one of my goddaughters who we were traveling with, and all I saw was her face. You know why she looked like that? Because she was standing in front of a black lace catsuit and Louis Vuitton boots that were once worn by Taylor Swift. Woo! Yeah, I mean, it was pretty crazy. It's like she herself had been to the moon and back. I mean, she was just... It's kind of strange, right? That the same feeling evoked by millions, trillions of stars and a seemingly endless universe, that same feeling could come by standing in front of a black lace catsuit. I'm going somewhere with this. In Matthew and Luke's Gospels, Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart shall be. When and where we feel awe reveals where our hearts truly are. Notice Jesus claims our hearts don't control us as though we can't help how we feel about this or that or how strongly we feel about it. Instead, Jesus says that where you put your treasure, that's where your heart's going to go. Our treasure can direct our hearts. And by treasure, He doesn't just mean money. We treasure our time, our reputation, our purpose. So if I put my precious time, for example, into following a certain football team or scrolling through pictures that tell me I should look a certain way or, or if I spend my time listening to a certain band, then guess what? That's where my heart goes. My heart follows my time. I start to care a lot about that team. I start to care a lot about those looks. I start to care a lot about that band. Money works that way too, of course. Spend a lot on my car, spend a lot on my clothes. I start to care more about my car and about my clothes. Like Dave Ramsey says, he says, I can tell you what you really care about. Just show me your calendar. Show me where your money's gone in the last few months. That's where your heart is. You might say you care about these other things, but where your treasure is, there your heart shall be. So, if you looked through your financial statements or really reviewed your phone usage, for example, because it'll tell you how much time you've invested, right, wasted on each app in your phone, If we really examined that stuff, most of us, including me for sure, would find that we aren't always spending our treasured time or money on the things we want our hearts to care more about. Is that fair? I mean, it's not just me, right? So why do we do this? Why do we give our reverence, our wonder, our deep feelings of excitement to people or things or places that if you consciously asked us, we'd say, yeah, those things, those people, those places, they don't really deserve the attention we offer them. Like, why did our state get way more fired up about the Aaron Rodgers soap opera these past 11 days than how it's going with our thousands of Afghan allies who continue to live at Fort McCoy? Like, I couldn't find one news story about them from the month of November. And I was looking. Now, I'm not the master of search words and whatever, but I couldn't escape seeing or hearing about Aaron Rodgers. Why do we give our attention and sometimes our awe to things that don't deserve it? Or maybe I should ask it this way. Why don't we, because we're Christians, we've come here to worship this morning, why don't we give our imagination and energy to what does deserve our hearts? To God. To acts of mercy, to acts of justice, to acts of generosity that would all be a way of directing our hearts in the direction of God's love that we believe unites us all. And I suppose one of the answers to that question is because following Jesus, the one who truly deserves our awe, is a learned behavior. It is a practice. I mean, following a football team is too, but I've got all kinds of messages telling me to do that. Learning to follow Jesus comes with fewer commercials, there's less merch to wear caring about the ways of Jesus is harder than scrolling through Instagram. And following the ways of Jesus might even conflict with some of that other stuff that we think is more fun. So at this point in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has been teaching in the Jerusalem temple itself. Large crowds are listening to Him, and they're listening to Him answer tough questions from the powerful people in charge, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Recently, like very recently at this point in the gospel, Jesus has warned everyone there saying beware of the scribes, these Pharisees and Sadducees, for they look to for they like to look good and have the best seats in public places and be noticed when they're out and about. They like to ham it up when they pray. They're phony. They devour widows' houses, Jesus said. Then Jesus highlights the faithfulness of a widow who gives everything she has as an offering to the very temple those phonies operate. And after all that, after trying to make it clear that the, the powerful have gained their power in selfish, unethical ways, Mark tells us this story we just heard for today. As Jesus came out of the temple, so he's just been saying all these things that probably didn't go over real well with the powers that are, as he comes out of the temple, one of the disciples says to him, ah, look, teacher. These are amazing. What large stones, what large buildings. Wow. It's like Taylor Swift has taken center stage for this disciple. This disciple stands in awe of a wonder of the world for its time and really for all times. I don't want to bore you with too much history here, but I think it's going to help to understand where the disciple is coming from. The first temple, Solomon's Temple was built a 1,000 years before Jesus and then destroyed in 586 B.C. A new temple was constructed 70 years later, but it was pretty modest. It wasn't as grand as the original. So for 500 years, that modest second temple stood, and then came Herod the Great. We've heard of Herod the Great, and part of why he called himself Great was because of the way he renovated that modest second temple. He took all those offerings from widows and everybody else and poured them into gold facades and marble staircases. And when he got done with it, the new and improved second temple was massive and majestic and imposing. And people of Jesus' generation, they would have been looking upon it with awe. And it would have been hard not to at the same time think of the man behind the structure, the man responsible for bringing this amazing thing to be, Herod. And that, of course, was Herod's point, right? He wanted you to notice not only what it looked like, but remember who made it look that way. So you've got this disciple gawking in wonder. And Jesus says, yeah, do you see those great buildings Not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. In other words, none of this that you're so impressed by matters at all. This building is not worthy of your reverence, your wonder, or your awe. I mean, the message is very clear. As impressive or as amazing, as awe-inspiring, as something like Herod's temple, as much as we may show reverence to a nation, or a kingdom, or a football team, or a singer, or even as many of us worship our own idea of what freedom means. We deify that too. All of it is temporary. All will crumble. And the temple in Jesus' day would be no exception. It's a message that reminds me of a prayer written by Walter Brueggemann back in 1996. It's called Odd to Heaven, Rooted in Earth. And I've actually updated the part that made it speak to the moment 25 years ago so that it can speak to our current moment. It's a poem that challenges us to remain engaged in this world, for sure, while living into the thrill of a faith life that promises good news for all people. It's a couple minutes, so I'm going to invite you to to really hear it. We are ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. We flip off this series of words too readily, but they are precious words to us because they tell the whole tale of our life, and we savor them. Ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven, made new made innocent, made possible. More than that, these words that tell our truth bind us to you and to your passionate truthfulness. While the words linger sweetly on our lips, we are summoned beyond ourselves, as we always are, summoned to you in awe. Summoned past ourselves to you "...only to say, Alleluia, God of heaven, Alleluia, still the same forever, Alleluia, slow to chide, swift to bless, Alleluia, gladly all our burdens bearing. When we sound these ancient cadences, we know ourselves to be at the threshold with all your creatures in heaven and on earth, everyone from rabbits and parrots to angels and seraphim, Alleluia, angels teaching us how to adore you." And then, in the middle of our praise, which causes us to float very light, we are jarred and sobered, because we dwell in time and place, in time, in the beginning of a cold winter, and not all the poor have a place to stay warm. Alleluia. In time during a worldwide pandemic when the wealthy complain more about inflation than they care about injustice, alleluia. In place just near Port-au-Prince, Haiti amid so much desperate fear, alleluia. In place just near Bethlehem where the pot of old resentments boils to the rim, hallelujah. Dwellers then in time and place. Here in Haiti, Bethlehem, and all the places where you are so weak and vulnerable. And that's how it is when we praise you. We join the angels in praise and we keep our feet in time and place. Odd to heaven, rooted in earth. We are daily stretched between communion with you and our bodied lives, spent but alive, summoned and cherished, but stretched between. And we are reminded that before us, there has been this one truly divine, at ease with the angels, truly human, dweller in time and place. We are thankful for him and glad to be in his missional company. Alleluia. Amen. We are awed to heaven and rooted in earth. I got to be among the redwoods this summer when we were on vacation, and that is my image for this poem, trees that reach from the ground for thousands of years, more than 300 feet into the sky. Those trees can't walk or talk, but they live, they grow, they drink, they host animals, they reach for light. And that's just what we see happening above ground. Underground, they reach for water with almost as much of themselves as we see above. They send roots in all kinds of directions. Their strength, their ability to weather storms and cast shade trees make me wonder. They make me feel awe. And I think this image of rooted in the earth while stretching to receive God's light, a tree seems to get it. Brueggemann's prayer is about noticing the brokenness of this world, living in it, rooted in it, while at the same time stretching in worship, in praise toward that which is holy. Doing both is discipleship following Jesus. Jesus teaches his disciples to look beyond the shiny objects that distract us and instead invest our hearts, minds, and souls in that which is true, into that which is eternal, into that which is life-giving. Love, made known to us in the relationships that we're reminded of by this cloud of witnesses that we still remember from last Sunday and so many Sundays before, Love made known to us in our vocations, in our generosity, love made known to us in what brings us joy. We're sneaking up on Thanksgiving time already, 11 days actually, till Turkey Day. As we all sit down to the feasting tables, I pray that as you give thanks in whatever ways your family or friends traditionally do, I pray you offer gratitude for opportunities to not only become more rooted in the challenges presented to us, but also the opportunities you have to be awed to heaven, that we would all say at all times and in all places, Alleluia. Amen.